Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Paideia Today. I am Dr. Bill Friesen, and I am joined here by Dr. Scott Masson, and we are discussing the dead and the treatment of the dead uh, and everything that follows from that from the Iliad. Dr. Masson, you have a reading from Book 23 of the Iliad where Patroclus' ghost or shade has come to Achilles in a dream uh, with various demands. Would you mind reading that? Yeah, it's really interesting because he's wandering the earth like Hamlet's father's ghost, seemingly, right? Just mm -hmm. uh, And tormented by it in some way. So I'll pick it up, Book 23, line uh, 68, where I read, The ghost came and stood over his head, that is Achilles' head, and spoke a word to him. You sleep, Achilles. You have forgotten me, but you were not careless of me when I lived, but only in death. Bury me as quickly as may be. Let me pass through the gates of Hades. The souls, the images of dead men, hold me at a distance and will not let me cross the river and mingle among them. But I wander as I am by Hades' house of the wide gates, and I call upon you in sorrow. Give me your hand. No longer shall I come back from death once you give me my right of burning. No longer shall you and I, alive, sit apart from our other beloved companions and make our plans, since the bitter destiny that was given me when I was born has opened its jaws to take me. And you, Achilles, like the gods, have your own destiny, to be killed under the wall of the prospering Trojans. There is one more thing I will say and ask of you, if you will obey me. Do not have my bones laid apart from yours, Achilles, but with them, just as we grew up together in your house. So that passage uh, is not dealing with the body of Hector, it's dealing with the body of Patroclus. Correct. His friend whose uh, death uh, in his guise, so Hector had brought him to death uh, and uh, probably mistaking him for Achilles, and that is what instigated Achilles' return to the battle and the conclusion of the, uh, of the Iliad, uh, because then there's the final showdown between Achilles and Hector. And now Hector is dead, and his body is not only dead, but being dragged around the walls of the city in a, a horrible way. Yes, um, and, and also being dragged around soon around Patroclus's tomb. Uh, yes. So you have a very, very striking image where a whole series of dichotomies are being set up and played off against one another. And it seems to me from this passage that one of the main interests here, one of the reasons that you have such sacred, powerful, sacred obligations to the dead is that if you do them, it'll keep the dead from wandering. It'll allow the dead to finally find their home in Hades where they do not know themselves as selves. And to me, that sets up an immediate problem because uh, we see in other texts like the Odyssey that those who are in Hades don't want to be in Hades. It's not <laughs> a good place to be. Uh, yeah. When they're allowed to know themselves, you have to go through certain rituals so they can actually become conscious of themselves and speak again and give you advice. Um, so drink some, drink some blood, for instance. Yeah. Exactly. The blood and wheat and all that stuff. Yeah. So then the question is, why is the shade of Patroclus so eager to get to this place he doesn't want to be? What's happening there? 
And I think there's a contradiction there. And I think the, the, the original readers would have detected it as well. And whether they ever came up with a, a solid answer for it, I don't know. But well, this is where the, expl the psychological explanation falls a bit short. Uh, he wants to be there. He feels pain to be there. It's almost a necessity for him to get there. But it's not a psychological necessity. It's almost like a telos. He, he's destined. That's where his body ought to be with the dead and the souls of the dead. And he can't get there unless he's been buried. So there's a, a sacred obligation, which is also part of his destiny to be there. But as you say, once he gets there, they live a lifeless existence and, uh, and they're not, they are not happy. No, it's, it, to some extent, it's a matter of propriety that the shade wants to be there. Is it something that's actually desired in and of itself? No, it's, that's impossible. When the shade gets there and doesn't have rational self-consciousness, there's not even a basis for desire. How can it know what to desire for a thing it does not understand? I also find it very interesting that this is one of the earliest recordings of a dream vision that we encounter in Western literature. And yeah. you know, we see a lot of dream visions coming along uh, in later centuries amongst many writers. And it gets worked into an extremely refined art form. So much of the groundwork that's being laid out here in the Iliad is very, very interesting because it points uh, towards the trajectory of the development or the evolution of the dream vision in the West. Of course, the most, uh, the most famous dream vision is uh, the dream of Scipio Africanus. Right. That uh, we'll encounter much later by Macrobius, I believe it was, who records it. Yeah, and the only one that's comparable, but it's not a dream vision, and it just struck me in, in scripture, when the prophet Samuel is the, the witch of Endor mm. at, uh, at Saul's, King Saul's behest, raises up Samuel for, for the purposes of counsel. But that's different. That's like necromancy. That's a sort of a witchcraft. That's not what's going on here. There hasn't been, there's no right that's he, it just, the body itself has appeared. Nobody, ha, and it's come in a dream. Nobody has, there's been no sort of witchcraft that going on, right? So there's a difference here. It is genuinely a dream. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting to me also to consider, this is the psyche, if you will. This is the, that final breath um, that Patroclus gave out as he died. His soul went with it. So it's all bound up in this, this notion. Uh, and yet, we're going to see the later development of the Deomon. Uh, as right. Kind of, the Deomon is not simultaneous. It's not the same thing as this psyche here that we're dealing with. I'm watching that and the evolution of that as well. Mm. Um, here, you notice we're, we're getting something that later on, it's not a visio. A visio is the type of prophetic dream vision that you get where you simply have a vision of what is going to transpire or what needs to transpire or something like this. This one comes with a venerable, in this case, much loved speaker. So there's yeah. a figure who speaks back from the dream world. You're not just seeing things. Somebody is saying things back to you. This is what ought to be. So here we have a voice of authority. Achilles can ignore it, but he won't ignore it. He loved Patroclus. Of course. Uh, and Patroclus loved him. Ergo, the request to bury the bones together after the after the cremation. And he recognizes the, the appeal not just because of Patroclus, but because it's a standard Greek understanding of how to treat the dead. And it's not just the Greek understanding, it's also the Trojan understanding. That's correct. They share that in a sense. So they share an element of culture. Care for the dead is very, very important. Yeah. Um, Which is throughout the ancient Near East, the Egyptians likewise, right? The mummies and the, you know, they have to be prepared for the underworld in a certain way. By the way, it's uh, the cremation is another one of these interesting anachronisms. We know yeah. that the Mycenaeans did not cremate their dead. They interred them. 
So, right. but there was an obsession with cremation between approximately 900 BC and 600 BC. And then it was actually it got to such a mania that Solon uh, actually passed edicts against the elaborateness of uh, funeral rites and, and what have you. Yeah, the, but, the, the lawgiver of the uh, Athenians, yeah. That's right. But here we actually see Homer actually addressing something with which his current audience would have been quite obsessed. This would have been a big deal. Hmm. So uh, in addition to that, we can contrast that to the treatment of Hector and uh, the way that uh, Achilles is desecrating his, the body. It's not just that the Greeks and the Trojans are dismayed by his behavior, because even his own people find uh, the behavior disgusting. This is too much. <laughs> yeah. this is, I mean, he's hacking away at this dead body. He's dragging it around uh, the walls of Troy. He drags it around the funeral pyre of Patroclus. He stabs at it uh, continuously. Not only the Greeks, the gods themselves are disgusted. They're yeah. so dis they're disgusted, and and this is another. There's another quote. This is a book from book twenty four, uh, and I believe this is Apollo. It is Apollo. It says, um, and he's appealing to the other gods. He says, "You are hard." This is uh, line thirty three. You are hard, you gods, and destructive. Now, did not Hector burn thigh pieces of oxen and unblemished goats in your honor? Now you cannot bring yourselves to save him, though he is only a corpse for his wife to look upon, his child and his mother, and Priam his father, and his people who presently thereafter would burn his body in the fire and give him his rites of burial. No, you gods, your desire is to help this cursed Achilles within whose breast there are no feelings of justice, hmm. nor can his mind be bent, but his purposes are fierce, like a lion who, when he is given away to his own strength and his haughty spirit, goes after the flocks of men to devour them. So Achilles has destroyed pity, and there is not in him any shame, nor does much harm to men, but profits them also. For a man must someday lose one who was even closer than his, a brother from the same womb or a son, and yet he weeps for him and sorrows for him, and then it is over. For the des destinies put in mortal men the heart of endurance. But mm -hmm. this man, now he has torn the heart of life from great Hector, ties him to his horses and drags him around his beloved companion's tomb and nothing is gained thereby for his good or his honor. So great as he is, let him take care not to make us angry. For see, he that is Achilles does dishonor the dumb earth in his fury. So he, uh, this is fascinating to me. So Apollo himself is outraged because he has destroyed pity and honor hmm. but he's destroyed pity because of his glory he's remember we talked about um in aristotle where he talks about purging pity and fear that's right achilles uh has done exactly that he has purged those things from himself and it outrages apollo that he should be so glorious as to be beyond those things and he even he's even more or less smiting the earth and he says, be careful lest they make us angry because, of course, he's excelling the gods yeah. in a sense. And so they, they intervene at this point. Yeah, he has, Apollo says, and whether or not you accept this is, of course, up to the reader, but he says he's, it's not just that he has no shame and that he has no pity. He has no justice. And he yeah, says he has no honor. But wait a second, if he has no honor then what happens to the glory he so desperately seems to want to attain and indeed is attaining by his infamy. So they're almost like empty appeals. He has no justice. He has no honor. He has no pity. Well, actually he's the great figure that is now 
threatening Apollo by his glory. Yeah. And the gods have to bring him down. And also in terms of cultic practices uh, and mythological uh, developments, we're at a very interesting time in Greek history where it seems to be that uh, cults of the wild, uh, of the orgiastic, like Dionysus and what have you, are fading and losing their grip, losing their power, though they never completely lose it. And we see the rise of Apollonian cults uh, in numerous different venues. And of course, Nietzsche makes great hay with this later on when he talks about that tension between the Dionysian and Apollonian. Yeah. But here, Apollo is not coming across looking particularly impressive. Um, and it begs yet another question, which is, why is there such a sacred obligation to the dead? Because a lot of scholars like to talk about uh, uh, funeral uh, rituals and things like that in a descriptive sense and finding good. And uh, on a good day, we'll get somebody, usually an anthropologist or somebody like this, who will talk about ancient Greek funeral practices from kind of an ideological, that is to say, a causational perspective. But they'll right. only speak to it in terms of what kind of practical purposes the funeral rites will serve. Nobody talks about the sacred reasons, the sacredness of those obligations. What drives the sacred obligations? And on that, the scholars are silent. Now, it's not like I've got a magical answer here. I think this is a study of many, many years to come up with something uh, cogent on this front. But nevertheless, I think it is a very necessary question we need to be asking ourselves here, essentially taking it away from sort of scientific approaches, such as you encounter with uh, the social sciences and what have you, yeah. and adopting a more liberal arts approach to the question, why are there sacred obligations to the dead? Because Which the seem universally recognized, yeah. Yeah. Because you'll find certain cultures where the desecration of the dead and the violation of those funeral practices is perfectly normal. Places like, you know, Central Africa, or I remember reading a poem by Rudyard Kipling where he talked about how the Afghani women would come out if you fell on the battlefield and mutilate the bodies of fallen British soldiers. Well, it happened to Saddam Hussein in, the re in recent times as well. That's what and to Gaddafi as well. That's Same what thing. I meant, sorry. Um, yeah. And on the other hand, there are other cultures where that's absolutely unthinkable. You do not desecrate the dead. You bury them with honor, even if they're your enemies. Even so, if they're your enemies, yeah. Yeah, so what is the tipping point between one extreme or its opposite extreme? I don't know, but it's an interesting question to me. And likewise, you know, as a young man, I used to be quite callous and indifferent about what happened to dead bodies. You know, Including your own. Including my own. I don't care. I'm dead. I'm not in that anymore. Yeah. And then I read a Ted Hughes poem called, entitled, Dogs Are Eating Your Mother. Yep. And he describes how the dogs are eating your mother in a back alley and fighting over the viscera and just is pretty disgusting. But it did make the good point. I thought to myself immediately, I am not okay with that. And I am not okay at the sacred level. That is a violation, not just of taste or family or domestic obligations. That is a violation at a deep level of taboo, which is a completely different species of violation. Than yeah, I agree. Ethics and morals. Yeah. And that immediately forced me to pause and think more deeply about our obligations to the dead and the desecration of the dead potentially. So, Which is a part of our obligations to the living, right? The two, to some degree, go together. Um, yeah. And it's bound up in a certain very interesting way also with the reverence shown to uh, the father figures that we encounter in ancient literature. Because Priam is a father mourning for his dead son whose funeral... Uh, funerary obligations have not been fulfilled, cannot be fulfilled. Achilles is obsessed with his own father's grief 
after he himself will be killed. Right. We see uh, when we get to the, uh, the Aeneid, we're going to see this treated again. So there's a cult of the father bound up deeply with sacred obligations to the dead and the memories of the dead and the interment of the dead bodies and all the things that go along with this. This is a whole rich interconnected world of cause and effect. Anyway, so we encounter when Achilles is dragging that body around um, Patroclus's funeral pyre, we encounter a couple of things. One of the things is that we encounter both the killer and the killed. And actually, there's a three level to that, of course, because Patroclus is the killed. Hector was the killer. And the killer, in turn, of Hector is dragging the killer of Patroclus around there. So we've got that going on. And we have this also curious oscillation in these figures between uh, the outrage and the grief on the one hand and the outrage and the wrath on the other hand. Achilles yeah. considers his fallen friend Patroclus on the funeral pyre. And he considers the body of Hector being dragged behind him. And he's going back and forth between grief and wrath and grief and wrath. And I think that's a very interesting sort of driving dichotomy. I think there's a lot of fuel coming out of grief that drives Achilles' wrath. And it just makes him wild. It gives him almost divine wrath, as we've talked about in previous As we talked about it, it, it really is divine wrath. That's right. Yeah. And also, it's uh, perhaps... Uh, uh, relevant to point out here that by the time Homer is writing the, the chariot behind which Hector is being dragged uh, were used almost exclusively merely for ceremonial games, like the games that are thrown for Patroclus actually yeah. after, his, yeah. uh, after uh, the prothesis uh, aspect of thing. But here they're being portrayed in the Iliad as if uh, people, they're using them continuously in act active open warfare. So yeah. Homer's being deliberately old fashioned and his audience is going to know that. Hmm. Yeah. So when, um, so we talk about book 24 there and uh, the return of the body when, because at the, uh, I, I read that extract from uh, Apollo speaking and mm -hmm. eventually the gods ag agree with Apollo right there. And, and decide that they're going to intervene and they're going to tell Achilles that he's got to give the body back. And um, the way that they do that is by going to Priam uh, and, and Hermes messenger of the gods who actually normally escorts the bodies down to the underworld good i'm glad you mentioned that that's true because he takes priam on a journey of to strange hostile places in the darkness to what may very well turn out to be priam's death and with the death and this is interesting with priam's death the war is over yeah troy doesn't have to fall because troy does fall if priam's dead it's it's done so and if that if he kills Priam, then he himself will not die. In which case, he himself will not attain the glory of the young death that he right because he will live. Priam's dead. He's just caught cut off the head of the serpent. And so, notice what happens here. It's it's not his wrath that uh, in this case that dooms him, if you like. It's actually passion. pity. It's pity. It's yeah. pity. It's the very thing that Apollo said he didn't have, and now he shows it, and that's his undoing. That's his undoing. Everyone says it's Achilles' wrath. It's not Achilles' no. wrath. That's just uh, how he got to the end. But when he finally takes pity on Priam, that's him dead. And right. that's the Greeks condemned to many more years of warfare. Yeah, this is a great point. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not, I don't know. This is year nine, right? So it's a, it's a year hence. And, and we don't see Troy fall, as we've said. And we don't see Achilles shot with the arrow through the... His Achilles heel, we don't see any of that. That happens off stage. And again, um, it's even prophesied by um, 
uh, whatchamacallit, uh, Patroclus, that he's going to fall. Right? So it's known that this is going to happen, but it happens off stage. It's not within the context of the Iliad. Yes. But you're right, and, and this is a, just such a key point. It's not his wrath that is his undoing. It is his pity. And the pity is infused in him by the gods, and it is out of the reverence that he will show for a f grieving father. Mm -hmm. uh, and he thinks of his own father and, and all of that. And so it, it's his humanization rather than his divinization that brings about his undoing. Yeah, and I think Achilles also being a very complex uh, character. He is complex. Yeah. Enormously complex. Is, I think at least at certain levels, aware of what he is doing when he takes pity on Priam. He's not a fool. It's not that all of a sudden his emotions ran away with him. Uh, not at all. Uh, he can connect the dots. He knows what's happening. He's making decisions for his own reasons uh, and uh, knowingly, if you like, condemns himself to death by giving way to pity. Yeah. But it's that, it, you know, it's that curious speech. It's, it's, there's this very powerful dramatic appeal as Priam beseeches Achilles uh, to consider his estate. And he says, you know, you've killed all my sons. I am bereft. I'm a father without sons. This is, you know, the awful, the awful scenario no father wants to find himself in. This is the nightmare uh, where all the, uh, all the young men, all your young men are dead. And this is the man in front of you who did it. And he says, you know, at least consider your own father yeah, let me, let, me read the passage. let me read the passage here, Bill. Sure, yeah. So Priam came in unseen by the other men and stood close bes beside him and caught the knees of Achilles in his arms and kissed the hands that were dangerous and manslaughtering and mm. had killed so many of his sons. And when the disaster closes on one who has murdered a man in his own land and he comes to the country of others, to a man of substance and wonder seizes on those who behold him, so Achilles wondered as he looked on Priam, a godlike man, and the rest of them wondered also and looked at each other. And, um, and we're told a few lines later, that, that was 4, 485, 15. He took the old man by the hand and set him on his feet again in pity for the gray head and the gray beard That's and right. spoke to him and addressed him in wing words. Ah, unlucky, surely you've had much evil to endure in your spirit. How could you dare to come alone to the ships of the Achaeans and before my eyes, when I am one who, is, who have killed in such numbers and such brave sons of yours, the heart in you is iron. Come then and sit down upon this chair and you and I will, let, will even let our sorrows lie still in the heart of all our grieving. There is not any advantage to be won from grim lamentation. Such is the way the gods have spun life for unfortunate mortals that we live in unhappiness, but the gods themselves have no sorrows. Yeah. Um, so there's the, and, and this is the hand, he kisses the hand of the man who's taken the life of his son. And, uh, and pity comes to him. And yeah. the pity is of uh, a fellow mortal man who is also grieving. And, and also at his heart, just, yeah. but also at his heart of iron which is the same heart of iron that Achilles was marked by, right? So he sees right. a man he respects. Um, and at the same time, uh, he's moved to pity, which he did not have before. Again, he's explicitly condemning the unfairness of the gods, the injustice of the gods. The gods yeah. have no cares. We are burdened with sorrows, often if not usually by those gods. 
it's a very different way of thinking about the divine and divine figures, uh, gods, if you like. Because, of course, from uh, a Christian background, we're told that the reverence and what have you has to be in spirit, not merely in action. This has to be a, a state of mind, a state of heart. Uh, and if it isn't, then all the external behavior you like will not help you achieve that communion, that, that rightness, that righteousness. Here, Achilles openly challenges and disparages the gods. The very gods who enforce justice are themselves unjust. Yep. And when he realizes that another person, Priam in this case, is also under the same yoke, as indeed all men are, then all of a sudden that infuses his heart with pity. The thing that made me wild with rage, the wrath of Achilles, is also foisted upon Priam, who has lost everything. Yeah. And we're, we're in this together. Yeah. And then Priam really, in a beautiful masterstroke, uh, he says, you know, at least your father still has you, you know, yes. at least that's something not knowing, of course, that Achilles himself is fated to die. <coughs> Achilles knows he's fated to die, but no, Priam knows know yes. that. And so all of a sudden that's a powerful twist of irony that Priam should say this to Achilles at this moment. And he should say it also from, uh, he's also completely guileless. Yes, without, there's he's no, not trying to manipulate correct. anybody. Remember Achilles hates that when people say one thing, and uh, hold another in their heart. Like Here there is no guile and there is right. bitter, powerful, dramatic irony that this man is drawing comfort from the fact that his son's killer's father won't have to undergo what he himself has undergone. Right. Only Achilles knows that he will. And that, yeah. is, that, that is the exact tipping point where Achilles breaks and relents right. in his wrath. That's the right. end of, essentially, it's the end of the epic at that point. Although even then, he grants him nine days to take care of the body. And mm -hmm. at the end of that, it's there, we're back on. It's back to war. Now, the war does not, that we don't conclude with that. We conclude with uh, the, the lines were, um, such was the burial, their burial of Hector, breaker of horses. That's the conclusion of the Odyssey or the Iliad. It has nothing to do with Achilles. It has to do with the burial of Hector. Yeah. And then, then we're like, okay, but what happens next? Well, we know what happens next, but we're not told about it. It's the Iliad. We don't even hear of the fall of Troy. No. Um, and it, it ends with a note about Hector, not about Achilles' wrath. So again, um, what is Homer saying here at the conclusion of this great epic about the wrath of Achilles, because we, you and I talked about, we're going to talk about the Odyssey next and about the very different portrait of heroism in Odysseus as opposed to Achilles. Is that being already tipped off here by concluding with the way in which Hector was buried? I mean, I, I think there's something of that here, but it's, it's odd that it doesn't, it, it begins with the wrath of Achilles Mm -hmm. It concludes with the burial of Hector, breaker of horses, the man who is the domesticator, the man of culture, like a breaker of, of horses. This is a high form of culture to domesticate such a beautiful animal um, and so powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's presented in some ways as that. Um, but he will die. And we know that Achilles' death is not long after. And so is the civilization that was around Hector. Um, yeah, I mean, you've got... We talked about different types of hero previously. We've talked about the primitive hero like Heracles or Ajax or somebody like this. We've got the, the, the trickster hero in Odysseus. 
we've got the classic archetype of hero in Achilles himself. He's a man great both of, of valor, so he's got a great heroic heart. He's got a sharp mind. He's got a tremendous uh, heroic public uh, presence and capabilities rhetorically. And then we've got Hector, who is the, in, in my view, and in view of a number of scholars, the hero of the polis. He, his heroism is deployed on the part of the community, which is a direct antithesis to Achilles. Achilles will let the community go up in flames and die horribly. In order although, in, to, although in the end, he decides to fight on the battlefield rather than stay behind the walls. So he's a bit like your man Beowulf, who decides he's going to go out that one last time against the dragon, even though he knows he's left his city undefended in the process. And the decision might be actually worse than had he stayed behind, because now he's left. There is no defender. There's no one left. So without Hector, the city is going to fall. Yes. So it's the, there's a real tension there. And it's, uh, I, I think he's left with a terrible uh, dichotomy. He, there's no right answer there, but he decides fighting on the battlefield is what he's going to do rather than to retreat behind the walls. Well, Tolkien noted this as well as a number of other scholars that the hero isn't the hero in conventional humane terms until the hero is willing to go forth and die. And some would even argue and say that, no, he actually has to go out and die before yeah. he's properly heroic. A hero who goes out and does mighty deeds and returns victorious again and again and again isn't properly heroic. It's right. defeat when you risk everything, when you're willing to wager everything, including life itself, on the battlefield for the sake of glory or community or whatever it might be, then you truly become heroic. Then you are a tested thing. And this is why in Germanic cultures, they're much more interested in glorious defeats than glorious yeah. victories. Yeah. And that's why Beowulf at the end, this is, everyone's paying complete attention when they know that Beowulf goes out to die. But Beowulf isn't... Um, as a hero isn't charting the way forward for the ways in which heroism is portrayed. We see it again and again and again in this, this kind of ur text of the Iliad where Achilles knows he is going to die when he goes out onto that battlefield. That's it. You're done. Hector knows that he risks death and indeed right at the very end where he's tricked and he turns to stand and he accepts the fact that he's going to die, but he's going to fight and die. That's where he truly becomes heroic. Hector is not heroic when he drives the Greeks down to the ships. No, not no, no. conceived. It's when he turns to stand and die in battle against Achilles that all of a sudden he is immortalized as one of the great epic heroes. Even though he wails like a baby and cries and begs for mercy. But well, that, there's an yeah. argument about Greek heroism and what have you in that. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm not, not disputing his heroism. It's just it, it, there's a no. Point. His manners in articulating it are very different than, say, Romans or again in you know Anglo-Saxon literature or stuff like this. Um, yeah. That's something with which the Greeks are fine. They're they're very emotionally open about a lot of things and the ways in which later Stoics would not be. Uh, so we just have to kind of take that as one of the cultural uh, distinctives. I think we're done there, Bill. Well, I, think, um, yeah, I think that's about it. So next time we'll look at the Odyssey and we'll look at heroism. We'll look at the importance of story. We'll look at the, uh, the underworld, the portrait of the underworld, which will present a backdrop for what we'll see in Roman culture and the Aeneid and, and how it's then dealt with uh, in, in Christianity and, and so forth, because those are significant departures and they're really interesting and helpful to hold them in contrast to one another and see how one speaks into the others. Okay, excellent. Scott, thank you one more time. Thank you.